Hello and welcome to this week's podcast and another dip into the Hay Archive. This week we're joined by journalist and author Oliver Bullough. Hello, I'm Oliver Bullough and I am lucky enough to be not just a regular chair and speaker at the Hay Festival, but to be actually from Hay. So I grew up going to the festival at a time when both it and I were much smaller than we are now. And in fact, I, I think it never really occurred to me until I was surprisingly old, certainly well into my teens, that it was unusual for a very small town to have world-class literary figures coming and speaking during the May half-term holiday. Um, after I finished university, I, I left um, Britain. I went and lived in, in Eastern Europe, mainly in Russia, for, for a few years, where I worked as a journalist. Um, and after I came back, I wrote a, a book or two of my own. And so I ended up um, appearing at the Hay Festival as a speaker, um, which was fantastic. And of course, as a regular chair as well. Um, often the events I am asked to chair have a relevance to my um, chosen subject matter of Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union, which is how in 2015 um, I ended up um, asking questions of Sudja Popovich, a Serbian revolutionary who'd recently published a book about how to um, undermine uh, vicious, kleptocratic, brutal regimes with uh, essentially wit and humour. Um, I was very excited to have the chance to talk to Sudja because um, I'd met so many of his disciples, people who had followed his lead and risen up in, in, in revolutions in Georgia, um, in, in Ukraine, uh, in, in Kyrgyzstan and, and in other places. And so he was a um, someone I was very aware of, a, a hero to many friends of mine. And he turned out to be absolutely everything I had hoped for and significantly more, an incredibly funny man, um, very committed to uh, the cause of peaceful revolution. And, I mean, his whole talk from the 2015 Hay Festival is worth listening to. But I thought this bit was particularly... Um, uh, funny and, and insightful about the danger of propaganda, of state propaganda, an issue that, that I think sadly has become even more relevant in the five years since he, five or six years since he spoke uh, than it was then. Um, and also uh, he makes the, not just the moral case for peaceful revolution, um, peaceful um, resistance to, to corrupt and brutal authority, but also the practical um, case for it. And he does it in an incredibly funny way. Um, if you can, I'm not sure it'll be um, audible necessarily, but in, in uh, towards the very end of this clip, um, he, he makes a joke about Mike Tyson, which made me laugh so much that the water I was drinking at the time came out of my nose, um, which is the only time that's ever happened to me. Um, I don't recommend it, certainly not on stage in front of hundreds of people, but it, 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 was, a, um, it was a very memorable occasion. So here he is. And there were so many cases of aggressive state propaganda, and it's like 990... Uh, seven, we had this uh, state TV, which was more hatred from the common people than, you know, the, the parliament building or all this symbol of state authority. Uh, one way to deal with it is to really make propaganda ridiculous. So when Milosevic would go on TV and say, it's all foreign mercenaries, tomorrow we'll be start marching under every single flag in the world. Serbian, English, German, Russian, whatever. So we'd say, yes, we are foreign mercenaries. These are our bosses. And we are waiting for our fat checks coming from Langley, London, wherever these secret services are based. Then, during the research, we found that the groups like in places like Poland did something even more hilarious, 
which is hitting the messenger. Understanding that the real messenger is vulnerable and the state propaganda tools are really, you know, it's like people when they watch it too much, they start understanding that this doesn't work. So for example, in one of the stories in the book is uh, Polish people during the time of the state TV news were not only turning their TVs off, they were putting them in the strollers and taking them for a walk. <laughs> so, you know, you will take your TV, I will take my TV, we will meet in the street. And even the Polish communist government couldn't stop it because there was nothing in the law which will prevent you from walking. <laughs> and then they arrest you and accuse you for walking your... No, doesn't work. So you can do hilarious things to dismantle them, but seriously speaking, we are, we are looking at a world where, where I, I think this propaganda should be looked at because uh, the danger of the propaganda, as we learned from, from the example of the Second World War, propaganda is, is sweet and uh, the regimes are using it and the movements are using it. I mean, you need to learn the targeted communications, and you need to speak to the masses, and you need to brand your movement, and these are all the lessons learned. But the real problem with propaganda is when propaganda becomes shaping a politics. This is very dangerous. I assume Hitler found it very convenient to have an internal enemy in the face of Jews when he was writing his, his little Mein Kampf piece, but then when the machinery started operating, and this was starting shaping the policy, we end up with the very ugly, tragic criminal results in the real world, things like gas chambers. We've seen this in Serbia. It was a tool for bringing Serbs together by telling them that there is a huge world conspiracy against the Serbs and it's a, everybody's plotting. It's CIA, Vatican, Croats, Bosnians, brainwashing, 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 brainwashing. We ended up with Srebrenica and the war crimes. So the real danger of propaganda is when they start believe their own propaganda, and then the machinery starts doing nasty stuff. And then we are coming to a situation where there is no way, way back, because the very people who are doing it are completely brainwashed, and they believe that they are actually doing the right thing. So, I mean, this is a thing to have encounter, so please beware. There are foreign conspiracies everywhere around you, even now. <laughs> Um, <clears throat> I thought what I thought was amazing was the way you argued. Is a great. I'm sorry. I'm just going to keep picking out quotes. Um, most people think that a person with a weapon is a person who gets shit done, and yet when it comes to social change, it's often the person with a gun who fails most miserably. I, it was very interesting the way you argued that nonviolence isn't just right because it's morally correct. It's right because actually that's how you get things done. So when Milosevic or Putin or, or whoever comes at you and beats you up and, and shoots at you, it is correct to respond non-violently? Well, it's like there are two ways to respond to this. I will try a scientific way. We, we do teach in cool universities, though I have no, not one single course in political science. I'm a freshwater biologist, so if you need uh, advice on how to stock the Wei River with salmon, this is something I'm very good at. <laughs> and, uh, but at the same time, there are, there are scientists looking at this, and it's a growing field. And as I mentioned, this great study why civil resistance work by two American scientists. They were looking at the 323 different campaigns, and they find the possibility to win through the nonviolent campaign is 52%, as opposed to possibility to win through the violent campaign is 26%. And more important, production of durable social change in terms of democracy and stability, if you bomb or invade Libya or Iraq or Afghanistan or Serbia in 1999, your chances for having durable democracy is 4%. And then if you do it through the nonviolent means, and even if you fail, like Egyptians miserably failed after the revolution, you have 42% of chances to do the stuff. 
Of course, if you're gravely ill, you will take a medicine, which has 42% of chances to you know, make you healed, and people still do this. And that's, that sounds very scientific. I'll, I'll get to the completely different side of the show. Uh, challenging these people on the field of military just doesn't have common sense. You look at the Assad, and then you had the third largest military in the Middle East. An idea that you challenge this person on the battlefield of military equals the idea that if you need uh, to, to win over uh, Beckham, you pick the football field or, or the, the fashion catwalk. <laughs> but you don't. You pick something else. And you want to win against the Mike Tyson, the last battlefield you will pick is the boxing ring. Because the guy will eat your ears and then he will eat you. And your average life expectancy there is about 47 seconds. <laughs> But try playing Scrabble with him. <laughs> or chess. <laughs> like, so it's my, my not... Water just came out my <laughs> Better than your ears. <laughs> so, yes, uh, it makes a lot of sense. So, yes, it's far more moral, but it's also far more likely to succeed. And this is the rationale for doing this kind of stuff. Whatever the popular Hollywood Bruce Willis kicks all the S's movies tells you so that was suja popovich um he has a, a towards the end of that talk he has this extraordinary slogan which i he i don't know whether he ad-libbed or it was just something he says which i so often feel like i should put on a t-shirt and that was um freedom is like love you need to make it every day i thought that was um pretty much summed the guy up he's an absolutely wonderful occasion um, the next year in 2016 i had an even more extraordinary opportunity uh, not to chair an event, but to meet someone um, who, again, was a, was a, a real hero, Svetlana Alexeyevich, who had uh, just um, a couple of months before won the Nobel Prize for Literature. She is a, a Belarusian um, journalist, uh, writer, chronicler of her times, um, incredibly humane vision of the world. And she crafts her books out of conversations with with dozens hundreds of of ordinary people whose experiences you know it's like history from the bottom up whose experiences she she, she melds together to tell the story of of her lifetime um of the of the end of the soviet union and, and you know the the events around that um she was very little known in the uk um, almost unknown in fact and so her publisher was a one-man band um, a, a young guy who'd set up his own publishing company and uh, had translated these books, bought the rights to them and translated them and then had this extraordinary um, reversal or, or change of fortunes when she'd won the Nobel Prize and suddenly everyone wanted to read her and he was desperately trying to keep up with demand for her books, which I think was a real challenge. Um, so he had brought her to the Hay Festival um, and hadn't thought to provide a translator for the day there would be a translator when she was on stage but just for the day and he didn't speak Russian and she didn't speak English and because I was around um, uh, I was asked to to hang out with her just to spend the day with her and make sure she had everything she needed which was the most incredible privilege um, being able to spend a day uh, wandering around your hometown with the winner of the Nobel Prize for Literature and one of the great um, you know, chroniclers of the end of the Soviet Union was an unimaginable privilege, unimaginable experience. We walked down to the river um, here in, in, in Hay. We walked along the river, um, then into town, uh, showed her around the town. And then and then I got to um, 
translate for her in the in the queue for the book signing tent afterwards which was hilarious because she started off you know writing um these little letters to everyone inside their book and then you know the letters got shorter and shorter as 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 you know she had to sign more and more books and then you know after she'd signed about 15 she said Oliver how many um how many more people are coming um you know how many more and I looked and I was like I don't know Lana, maybe four or five hundred and and she's just her face she had absolutely you know overwhelmed by this by the response of the audience because she was magnificent um in this event um which was chaired by uh, Bridget Kendall the BBC journalist um incredibly well chaired um she um had a translator so um, Svetlana was speaking Russian and then the translator speaks afterwards but first of all we hear from uh, Bridget Kendall talking about Svetlana's book Secondhand Time and then um, Svetlana explains um, her method um, and, and her, her vision for how uh, literature should work. Um, I think she's, it's just a wonderful account of, of, of how she works and how this, this one amazing woman has managed to craft a, a vision of her time. And, and since this um, event, she's gone on to be, you know, part of the, 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 popular uprising in, in in Belarus so so you know in, in in a way though it could hardly be more different to Surja Popovich's um, event in a way there's that connection that, that um, both of them um, trying to expose the misdeeds of the of cruel elites in Eastern Europe and, and and you know having many ups and downs along the way so here she is here's Svetlana Alexeyevich a Nobel Prize winner speaking at Hay in 2016. And that's what you do, particularly in this new book, Secondhand Time. It's incredibly ambitious because it's drawing together many voices uh, who were there in 1991, the attempted coup in August 91, the collapse of the Soviet Union, but also the voices of many people since then. So it, it's a chronicle of, of much more than just one moment. It's of a whole epoch. And... Um, I was, when I looked at it, I, I, I was puzzled by the title to begin with, Second Hand Time. But actually, in your introduction, Notes from an Accomplice, you do explain the title. And, and so I just wanted to read that to you all here to give you a sense of uh, what Svetlana meant. Everything Soviet is back in style. Soviet-style cafes with Soviet names and Soviet dishes. Soviet candy and Soviet salami, their taste and smell all too familiar from childhood. And, of course, Soviet vodka. There are dozens of Soviet-themed TV shows, scores of websites devoted to Soviet nostalgia. You can visit Stalin's camps. As a tourist, the adverts promise that for full effect, they'll give you a camp uniform and a pickaxe. They'll show you the newly restored barracks. And afterwards, they'll be fishing. <laughs> Old-fashioned ideas are back in style. The great empire, the iron hand, the special Russian path. They brought back the Soviet national anthem. There's a ruling party and it runs the country by the Communist Party playbook. The Russian president is just as powerful as the general secretary used to be, which is to say he has absolute power. Instead of Marxism-Leninism, there's Russian orthodoxy. On the eve of the 1917 revolution, the writer Alexander Green wrote, and the future seems to have stopped standing in its proper place. Now, a hundred years later, the future is, once again, not where it ought to be. Our time comes to us second-hand. That's a wonderful passage. And so I, I suppose what it is, is it's a book which is explaining Russia's journey in the last 25 years. What happened, all the hopes from 1991, 
and why it's ended up where it is now, which also, in a way, is Russia or the Soviet Union's journey for 100 years. Is that right? Well, you know, you're right. I was a good person in a place, in a place, in a place, in a place, in a place. And it was... I also met people who saw Lenin. То есть у самых истоков этой идеи и до сегодняшнего дня, до Горбачева и Путина. You are right. You're absolutely right. I was the right person in the right place at the right time because I managed to meet some people who actually met Lenin and I continued meeting people who were meeting Gorbachev in our time and Горбачева и кого еще? Путин. And Putin. Как можно Путина забыть? How can you forget Putin? Я хочу сказать, что вот в 90-е годы мы все были романтиками. И вы здесь, на Западе, и мы у себя. Мы думали, что коммунист умер. Но когда ты живешь там, среди всего этого, я там жила, и не было ощущения, что коммунист умер. Было ясно, что в том или ином виде он будет возвращаться. You see, in the early 90s, we were all the romantics, you here in the West and we in the East. We thought that communism did die, but um, to us it was quite clear that um, there was an overhang of it and it survived somehow. И вот 30 чем-то лет я писала историю этой Красной империи. Но с самого начала я решила для себя, и тут мне, конечно, помогла то, что я выросла в деревне, и славянская деревня — это люди очень много рассказывают, люди живут всегда на виду и говорят о своей жизни, о своей беде. For the past 30 plus years, I was writing about the history of that empire, and what did help me enormously was the fact that I was brought up and I grew up in a village, and the life in the Russian village is very verbal. People share an awful lot; they are forever talking and discussing things. Несмотря на то, что мы родители сельские учителя и весь и дом был полон книг. Меня с самого детства тянуло на улицу, потому что рассказы людей были совсем о другом, они были страшные, красивые. Это были потрясающие рассказы. Our house was overflowing with books because my parents were village teachers. I was forever drawn to the street, to the life in the street, because people talked there, and their stories were very varied. They were horrid and they were beautiful, and I was drawn there. И о любви, и о войне я узнала именно не из книг, а именно вот из этих человеческих голосов. And they talked about love, and they talked about war, and I learned a lot about love and war, not from the books, but from the people's stories. И я себя спросила, что ведь когда говорят о великих идеях, никогда не спрашивают у маленького человека, что он думает об этих идеях. Он только песок, материал для этих идей. And I ask myself that when one talks about great ideas, um, nobody asks small people, average people, run-of-the-mill folk, what they think about those ideas. Поэтому... They're just the sand, the disposables in this game. And the most important thing in this project, as you said, was 
то, чтобы спросить этих людей, тех, у кого никто никогда не спрашивал, кто бесследно уходил в темноту, вот, поколение за поколением, и хотела спросить именно их, что они думают вот об этом таком красном великом проекте. And the main thing about my project was to talk about those people, to ask those people who nobody ever asked before what they think about this great red project. И я сразу решила для себя, что это будет рассказ, скажем так, о домашнем социализме, о том социализме, как он живет в человеческой душе, неофициозном, не в учебниках истории, как он живет в человеческой душе. And I immediately decided for myself that my story would be that of domestic socialism, how it was lived by the people, day in and day out, not the official version, the story of the people. So that was Svetlana Alexeyevich. To be honest, I could just keep listening to her voice for hours. Uh, many guests who come to the Hay Festival, like Suryar and Svetlana, are, you know, from far-flung places, bringing, you know, strange stories to, you know, a British, primarily British audience. You know, much of you know, the appeal of the Hay Festival is the fact that it's so international, you know, that you can hear from people from all over the world. But it's also very local. It's you know deeply rooted in Hay. Um, much of the audience are, are from Hay. People who work at the festival are from Hay, and so you know I bump into people I know. You know, every time I go down to the site, it's it's um, an, a, a really interesting balance managing to maintain this sort of local and, and yet global feel in one place and something that the, the festival works very hard towards and I think succeeds very well. So I'm I'm going to go from you know the the global vision to someone who, who could hardly be more local. Um, Hay is um, it's in Breckenshire um, which is one of the historic counties that makes up um, Powys now in Wales but just across the Dulas Brook in one direction is Herefordshire and just across the River Wye in the other is Radnorshire it sits at this you know the point where three historic counties meet um, and I grew up on a on a farm in Radnorshire uh, so just the other side of the river from Hay um, uh, and I have a brother Tom Bullough um, who launched his uh, new novel, then new novel, Adlands, at the Hay Festival in 2016. It's quite extraordinary that um, two boys who grew up on a farm in Randershire should both have ended up writing books. Um, but there we are. We, we, we had a lot of books in the house and you know, my, um, our mother always read to us, so I suppose perhaps it's not too strange. Um, and uh, he... Um, asked me if I'd ask him some questions um, at a 2016 festival and we were both a bit nervous because we have a, a bad tendency to make each other laugh. Um, we get the giggles about things that are utterly baffling to you know, almost everyone else. So there, there was a, a definite risk with us appearing on stage together that we would end up corpsing um, and, and essentially forcing a tent full of people to look at us laughing at an in-joke which no one else gets. But, but fortunately that didn't happen. Um, I managed to remain professional and so I asked him questions about his, his book Adlands, about his vision for a literature of place, um, you know, a literature born of Radnorshire, um, the culture and the people um, that we grew up around, but which has is, is, is never really been featured in, in literature as such. It's a, an oral um, culture rather than a, a written one. So, you know, he has thought very deeply about how to create uh, a literature of Radnorshire and a literature which is, you know, simultaneously 
local, very specific in its place, but also of universal global appeal. And he succeeds. He's he's a brilliant writer. Um, you know, it's almost poetry what he writes, but in in prose. So um, we're going to start with him reading a bit from Adlands, and then I'll ask him a few questions about his work. Um, so here he is, Tom Bolo, uh, speaking at the Hay Festival in 2016. I'm going to stand up for this to provide some, some exciting variety. Um, this is a book which um, covers 70 years. Um, it begins in 1941. But uh, the first bit I'm going to read is from 1947, um, the when the central character, Oliver, is six. Uh, 1947, as many of you will know, was a year of, of, of terrible snows um, and houses, whole telegraph poles disappeared under snowdrifts. And in this scene, Oliver and his mother, Etty, or Ethel, are looking for, or, or are looking for, really, the neighbour's house, which has disappeared. Etty walked a complete circle of the snowdrift, which started gradually by the lip of the hill and tailed into a cliff some 50 yards distant with a brink like a breaking wave. Had it not been for the smoke, you might never have suspected that there was anything inside at all. She tried to climb the slopes at the north and east, but the snow was loose, as fine as flour, and it sank and cascaded from her boots. Oliver stood with the dogs among the trees, holding a blotchy blue-green egg in the cup of his thick white woolen glove. Her, her shovel lay in the snow beside him. He looked up at the raven's nest, down at the wire of ice-caked animals. Where's the island, ma'am? Think you get up there, do you, Ollie? Etty asked. You're a handy little climber. I am not little. She joined her hands to hold his boot and propel him upwards, floundered after him and tried again until at length he crawled onto the back of the drift, moving slowly towards the tail of smoke now snatched and scattering to the west. Oliver slipped the egg into one of his gloves, his fingers braced to keep it safe. It was warm, that was the main thing. It must have fallen from the nest only moments before he arrived. This weather, so Albert had told him, was all the crueler for coming on a few days that might have been spring. He felt the wind on his neck and turned to the slope beyond the vanished barn, to Brungwyn Hill, to hills whose names he did not know, in the distant plain where clouds were ballooning, blazing white. He glanced at his mother, who had already started digging, then lay and peered into a black-fringed hole, and beneath him, in the turbulent smoke, saw a pocket of fire, movement in the darkness, the gleam of eyes in a soot-coloured face. Dick, he said, is that you, is it? Young Oliver, is we ever glad to see you, boy? Dillith sat in her blanket on the hob, beneath the boy in the square of sky. Snow was falling wet on her face. In the night she had been here, listening to the long despairing cries of the owls, watching the darkness stretch and tear, the sparks from the fire shrink and mingle with the stars. In the storm she had been here, while her brother smashed another chair for its wood and paced the flagstones, cussing and moidering, and the wind in the chimney made its godless scream. We found the coal, Ethel shouted on the path outside. Good on you, girl, Dick shouted back and threw himself again against the door. The blue became grey. The boy was gone, but the snow kept falling. He had never once looked at her, Idris. Not at school. Not even that time when he returned to the fun and with his hair army short and the hope extinguished in his face. 
But then her hair had been dark and skinny and soon flecked with grey, and her breasts had always been hopeless gestures on her chest. Even at 20, she could not have held a candle to that flighty piece, Ethel, with a hair like fire and her morals round her ankles. Dear Liz had heard the clacking at the market. She'd done her sums. The girl had arrived at the end of July, which was not six months before her gypsy-looking baby came along. Well, Dick could shrug about it all if he liked. He could burn the last banisters to boil the kettle and welcome these people into their cottage, but she at least had a morsel of pride. She sat in her place by the snow-spitting fire in the airless, dog-stinking cave of the kitchen and did not utter a single word. Thanks. There's a few beautiful words for you. Um, so tell us about the book, Tom. Oliver is the hero. Um, <laughs> I wondered how long this was going to last. You were seeming awfully like a proper chair. Um, oh no, t- Oliver. <laughs> yeah, should we get this out of the way? No. no. <laughs> Oli- Oli- the, okay. The, the central character in this book is called Oliver. I've blown the lid off him. That's uh, what more um, do you need to know? Uh, so okay. So tell us. Tell us about where he comes from. Where he lives. Well. <laughs> This book is set in a village called Ruscog, which is effectively where Rulin is, up the Edu Valley. So anybody who knows that area, sort of between Payne's Castle and Kragrina. Um, it's a farm called the Funnen, which doesn't in fact exist, but um, is roughly beneath Brungwyn Hill. Um, and the idea... Well, the name Adlands is a, it's a Radnisha dialect word, or perhaps rather a, a pronunciation of the word headlands, meaning the last part of, um, of a field to be ploughed. And the idea really is that this is, a, is, is such a remote farm that um, those social and cultural and technological changes that, the, that this whole country experienced um, during the 20th and early 21st century, this is the place that experienced them last. So it is a real place, but it's also, in a sense, a sort of ultimately remote place. Um, it, is a, it is a novel extremely rich with place in the broader scheme of things. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk about you know, what this place is? What, you know, what is this, this, this middle bit of Wales? <sighs> Wales, well, it's, um, this is a Radnisha novel, really, or it's a Borders novel, but it's a Borders novel that never mentions Wales or England or Welsh or English or the word border. Um, the challenge, I think, is to, was to make this a place that was absolutely central from the point of view of the characters of the people who lived there, really that it was written on the terms of those people, um, these people who, three generations really living on this farm over, over 70 years. But um, is it Wales? Is it England? It's, uh, it's, there are two different answers to that, really. There really are the terms of the novel, which are the terms of the people who are, who are living in it. And they would never consider mentioning Wales or England or anything else because it, it, their focus is really this, this microcosmic community. Um, but above and beyond that, this clearly is Wales. This is a place that is um, characterised by, historically by conflict. And although nobody really remembers anything in detail, there are vague memories of all sorts of... Um, of, 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 of um, 
of, well, battles in the case of Payne's Castle, later on um, memories of Prince Llewellyn and um, you know, his last days around Aberedu. And so history is hardwired into the place, and it is a, it is a, a battle zone, but it's, it's, it was very important to me that that stuff was very low in the mix, that it was there to be appreciated, but it, that it didn't figure in the forefront of the minds of the characters, and it is very much written from the point of view of the characters. I mean, it should be said, it is, I mean, all that is, though it's there, that, yeah, like you say, it's a very small part of the book, is really mm. about these, these, well, the, the father and mother and the, and the son, and then his relationships with other people. That, that's who the book That's is. what the focus is, but I mean, it has to be said, of course, you know, I'm also, when writing this, bearing these other things in mind, and so it was very important to me that this was specifically specifically Radnorshire. So the corrupted Welsh place names is a crucial thing. A lot of the language that people use between, between themselves. Um, and, you know, the surnames, of course. And um, so it's, it wasn't a question of disguising that this is in Wales, but rather, yeah, presenting it, as you say, on those, on those terms. Oh, shoot. I mean, it's a language that it's written in. It's a language I think I've probably only ever heard spoken. I'm not sure I've mm -hmm. ever seen it written down before. No. How, how I mean... How is that to, um, I mean, you, you, it's not like you've created the Radnorshire dialect, but, no. but, it's, but it's not something that tends to get written in much. No, well, you've got to sort of keep your ears open a bit. <laughs> I mean, a lot, there are, you know, I suppose that there, there are different shades to it. So there are quite a lot of words, which I suppose really are dialect words, which you would just use as a matter of course and pay no attention to. A word like pitch for a, you know, a sloping road. I mean... I don't know whether or not that gets used away, uh, you know, in places other than here, but it's not a word that seems to be understood when people come here and I use it. And then you've got words which are still in um, sort of current farming parlance, word like yeen, for example. I mean, I might use that word if I was talking to a farmer, but I would not use it in any other context because you wouldn't have those conversations in any other context. So that was my brother Tom uh, talking about his book Adlands in 2016. Um, one of the things I have loved most about the Hay Festival in recent years has been the ability to take my children to events. Um, they love uh, reading now and they love listening to stories as well. And their pleasure in seeing some of their favourite authors speaking and seeing a bookshop full of books by their favourite authors, as well as their pleasure in eating shepherd's ice cream is, you know, huge. Um, and it's just brilliant to be able to share the Hay Festival with them. Um, pretty much anyone, I think, with young children knows um, the delight of reading books by Julia Donaldson, who is, you know, an astonishing producer of very very readable children's books often children's books you can read them once or twice and you think no that's quite enough but julia donaldson somehow has the ability to keep producing books that can be read again and again and again so um both my wife and i and the kids would know these books completely off by heart and so it was really fun to take the kids in 2017 to see julia donaldson reading from some of her stories, singing songs based on some of her stories. I didn't just take my kids, I actually took my niece and nephew. And my niece, Alice, spent the basically entire event just standing with her hands on the stage, looking in absolute wonder and awe at Julia Donaldson. He didn't just appear on stage herself, but she brought on her husband, um, 
who played the guitar, uh, various uh, great nieces and, and other relatives and friends and people in costumes. It, it was a fantastic event. It seems incredibly distant sitting here in January in lockdown to think of the Hay Festival full of people and children running around eating ice cream and people reading books and deck chairs and the sunny May afternoon. It seems very distant when here it's a sort of muddy lockdown January. But anyway, it is lovely to go back to this event, to listen to it again and to think that soon, hopefully, maybe not as soon as we'd like, but soon enough, we're going to be able to do things like this again. So here is Julie Donaldson and various members of her family singing um, a song based on one of the books that my kids loved. Um, and I hope you like it. I hope it transports you as it transports me to a, a slightly warmer, happier, less socially distant time. We, in fact, we're going to sing you another song from the songbook, but it's a song based on Charlie Cook's favourite book. And we're going to do it with a difference. We're going to do it in Makaton, a special sign language. So if any of you want to join in with the signing, you can. I'll just tell you the signs for world. Can you all do this? World. And then book is easy like that. I think you could join in with those ones. So can I welcome my family back to the stage? And um, that's my sister Mary, my two great nieces, um, Lola, uh, sorry, not Lola, that's the one who isn't here, Claudia and Emily. And this is their mum, Imogen. We haven't met her yet, so let's give her a clap. Um, so we're going to sing you the world inside a book. There is a world inside a book And when you're caught up with a book It doesn't matter what your age is You can take a flying leap into the pages So take a leap and take a look Inside the world, inside a book Just take a look 
Inside the world, inside your book, there is a world inside a book. And when I'm curled up with my book, I meet a lady, a headless lady. And I fly around the castle with a lady. You can fly too, just take a look. Inside the world, inside my book, there is a world inside a book. And when you're curled up with a book, it doesn't matter what your age is. You can take a flying leap into the pages. So take a leap and take a look. Inside the world, inside a book. Thank you so Thanks for listening. The Hay Festival podcast is brought to you by Bailey Gifford Investment Managers, and you can find over 8,000 more recordings on the Hay Player on our website. Join us next time for another trip through the Hay Archives. <laughs>